you're there because of a suicide and these guys are all singing happy birthday. The body is still in the cell. Welcome back to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson Munro, a criminal psychologist with over 40 years of experience at the coalface. And I'm Dr Xanthi Mallet, a criminologist, lecturer at the University of Newcastle, and I have a specialisation in forensic science. Throughout the last season, you had many questions about our work and who we are, what it means to be a criminal psychologist or criminologist, and that's what we'll be doing today. Last episode, we answered your questions, but today we wanted to deep dive and unpack those in a little more depth. So the first one is, how did we become friends? Are we friends? Oh, that's is that the big question? Are we friends? Oh, uh, yeah, I think we're yeah, friends. Yeah, right, all right, I'll let you have that. Well, we've met like a number of years ago now. We've known each other for, I think, like it's got to be six or seven years or something. It's at least six. Yeah, okay. And we met, I believe, at the Sydney Crime Writers Festival. I remember it. We were introduced by the one and only Angus Fontaine from Pan Macmillan. He was our shared publisher. So he would have been your, you were doing a book with Angus at the time and I think I maybe just started writing? Something like that. Yeah, okay. And he, I think he said you guys should meet because you'd have a lot in common. Was he right? I don't think the jury's out on that anymore. I think, I think we do have a lot in common. You said to me why I'd really like to talk to you about giving a lecture at the University of Newcastle. That's right, yeah, yeah. And I said I'd be delighted and it kind of went from there, didn't it? Uh, Yeah, you came and talked to a whole bunch of students. I remember the room was packed out. And you talked to... Always. Yeah, it was, it was a big lecture theatre too. And you talked to my crim students, obviously. And I think there are a lot of psych students in there too. You just basically talked about your back, how you got into criminal psychology because everyone I know wants to know how you get into criminal psychology and what's really involved. And I think you shared a lot of your kind of war stories with the students because it's not always what people think, is it? You know, you're not going to fly around in a private jet like they do on some of the, like, the US shows. It, you know, it's it's much more kind of at the coalface than that. Uh, for most it is. Yeah. I've had the odd private jet trip, but, um, you know. That's because you're special, a, though. <laughs> it took a long time to get there. But I enjoyed giving that lecture and your students were great. And then I think we just started talking about maybe doing some joint venture things together. And, uh, and we have. We looked at books. I don't think we've done a book together yet, but we've certainly done some documentaries together that have been very successful. One of the questions that often is asked of me is, what sort of toll does it take upon me psychologically? And um, we've sort of covered that a bit. How does it affect you, do you think? Well, I don't... I am just very lucky in that it never actually... Well, I'd say it never has affected me, but there have been times when I've worked on things very intensively and I've noticed that I've needed to take a break and I think I've told you this story this is for the listeners really. so there was I, I wrote my first book on mothers who murder and obviously we touched on that with Kathleen that in 2014 yeah that's when I published it in 2014 so you were yeah. still in the UK then no it's to here I came here in ah. 2012 so right. I was okay. here but it was the first book that I'd worked on, Mothers Who Murder and Infamous Miscarriages of Justice. And I started with the Lindy Chamberlain case because when people read the book, I wanted them to have an open mind because just because somebody's been found guilty, it doesn't necessarily mean they did it. So that's why I started with Lindy and included a, a chapter on Kathleen Forbig and Kelly Lane, which is how I ended up getting involved with both their cases. They both contacted me as a result of that book. Anyway, I spent a long time looking at child abuse and neglect and all of the symptoms of the various types of abuse 
and I remember I was on a train, it was Christmas, so it probably would have been Christmas 2013, and I was sitting on a train and there was a woman across, I was sitting in that little vestibule area, you know, when you get on the trains in Sydney, and there was a woman across the seats from me with a pushchair with a baby in it, and I was looking at the baby thinking, okay, it's dressed right, it's it's obviously well-fed, the clothing is appropriate for season, it's clean, it's got good eye contact with the mother, and I was basically going through all of the signs of abuse and neglect that you would look at when you're assessing children, just in my head as an auto-response. And then I realised that that's not normal, that when you're looking at kind of children you're seeing and assessing whether they're being abused or neglected, you're probably not quite thinking as you should, you know, about socially. And I thought, I need to step away. Like I've been looking at this for too long, too intensely, that that's... You know, that that was a sign to me that that my thought process was not normal at that stage. And just taking a break from it helped me. But that's the only time I really remember it actually impacting my thought processes. That's an interesting story. Um, I recall back in the 80s there was a character on the loose in Melbourne. He was described as Mr Cruel and he was breaking into people's homes and abducting Young adolescent girls. Yeah, yeah pubescent um, girls, basically, yeah, 13-ish. Yeah. 13-ish, year 7, year 8-ish mm-hmm. kind of thing, year 9-ish perhaps. And um, I was doing quite a bit of work back then with the Victorian Police Force. I was lecturing to them. I was involved with the detective training, school training. And I was approached to see whether I would uh, do a bit of a profile on this person. Nobody knew who he was. I was given all this material about the various crimes spine-chilling stuff, and it coincided with, you know, my older children sort of hitting adolescence in a way. Uh, Some of them, in fact, were younger than that, and in fact, they weren't adolescents. They were much younger than that, but the impact on me was dramatic, and, you know, I've spoken about it before, but I think Melbourne developed a sort of sense of post-traumatic stress disorder vicariously. People would cancel dinner parties. You didn't trust babysitters to look after your kids. You wanted to be there to protect them. Well, this guy was breaking into houses with the adults present. So it's not even like people were fearful of just leaving their children home alone. They were even fearful, I imagine, when they were there because he was incredibly brazen. Totally brazen, without sort of getting into him too much. But how did that affect me as a criminal psychologist and as a father, I became very protective. I wanted to know where my children were going. I wanted to know a lot about their parents, their friends. They wanted sleepovers. I wanted chapter and verse about all of that. I can remember my oldest daughter, Jessica, she's you know nearly 38 now. We had a, a bit of a conversation about this a few years ago and she said, you know, back then we just thought you were a bit of an asshole, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, because they thought you were to be o- too controlling. Yeah, okay. She said, yeah. we now get it. We're very grateful to you. You knew too much. I knew too much. I'd seen too much. And look, you can't unsee, unlearn, Correct. unhear these things. I mean, the real downside to what I do, I suspect with you as well, is that you have been exposed to the darkest of the dark in terms of human nature. And the thing that often surprises me, not so much these days, is what ordinary people can do. Yep, under extreme circumstances. Yep. So you may assume somebody's okay, they're not. I trust my antennae. Yep, me too. And so that's part of the psychological toll of it all. And uh, 
it wasn't until, you know, probably the late 90s that I really started to understand the impact that it was having upon me. And uh, we've spoken about this before. You've got to set up uh, protective boundaries. I used to identify just solely as a psychologist. That was me, my persona. I was always in the media. I was always involved in the big cases and so on. Um, these days I don't. I mean, it's just something that I do and I still enjoy it. Uh, but I do other things to make sure that there's a big distance between what I do and my other life. And I know that one of the ways that I manage it is I have a very close group of friends but a small group of friends. I'm very mm. generally kind of distrustful of people, you know, on the whole. And even if I may have a kind of a, a larger circle of kind of superficial people I know, I keep those close to me. It's a very small group of kind of trusted individuals because, yeah, I think I just think those boundaries are important and I like to just keep myself kind of a bit shut away. And even though I do lots in the media too, I protect my privacy. Mm. You know, I, I like to keep my private life private. I don't, you know, I don't want to be talking about myself in those personal terms in public because I think I just like to keep my professional and personal lives very separate. I don't really do social media because and mm. I think it just makes you step back from people generally and just keep those who are close to you close, but everyone else may be at a bit of a distance as a protective factor. I think that's right. I mean, I stopped recruiting friends a long time ago. Except me. Absolutely, except you. You know, some people say I've become very reclusive and it, 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 I think it's a function of what I've done over, you know, four decades or so now. You become very sceptical and cynical and I'm not sure that's the way you should be, but you can have a close coterie of friends and also do your job as long as the two don't blur up too much. Yeah, I agree. But I think for me, I think it's important to keep those boundaries in place. Mm. Yeah, I don't want my private life really out there because that's I need to keep my two worlds separate, I think, and I feel safer and happier with that kind of boundary in place. They're very important. What about humour? <laughs> I've survived off dark humour oh, you know, yes. for yeah. all this time and uh, I certainly used to see it when I was working with the police, you know, their humour was quite off the wall at times. And you have to understand that though, the worlds that these people are embedded in all the time, I think if you just stepped into it outside as like the public, you might be a bit shocked by some of the mm. kind of things that are said and the jokes, but it's a way of diffusing tension and anxiety and managing which are very difficult psychological and stressful situations and trying to lighten that a little bit because, yeah, otherwise it might be overwhelming. I think it's right, right. I, um, you know, I've lectured at a lot of places over the years, but I remember I used to lecture at a detective training school in Melbourne and the lecture that I gave for each course was always on a Friday afternoon because I knew I would hold their attention because we could leave early and go to the police club next door. The pub. You were going to the pub next door, weren't you? The police club. Police Just club, at a.k.a. District. pub. Well, was they, there, had, they had a happy hour. Was there and beer there? There we was, are. There was cheap beer. And what struck me about these debriefing sessions at the police club was just the intensity of this humour. I mean, if you hadn't worked in that space, you'd be really appalled. But I realised this is how these guys were unwinding. You know, they'd had five days, six days, seven days since the last debriefing of dealing with homicides, all sorts of terrible things out there in the community. And they did it in a space where they felt safe to talk and uh, have a bit of a fueled by alcohol. Um, where they felt there was a degree of acceptance because, you know, apart from me and a few others perhaps who were working with them, 
you didn't get into the police club. You had to be a serving member. And um, the level out humour struck me. So it was a safe space to express themselves and to unwind. I'll give you another example. One of the things that I did back in the 80s, we set up a, a company, Davidson and Traher, and it was the first trauma debriefing company in Australia. So we were retained initially by the big four banks and then inevitably the Victorian Office of Corrections retained us to come in the wake of trauma. So with banks, it was in the wake of bank robberies. That was what I was going to ask you. I was like, what's happening in banks that they need trauma counselling? Well, back then, people would jump the counters. They would come in with guns. and So uh, this bank heist we're talking about, being heist. held up like at gunpoint. Back in the 80s, we were going to five robberies a day in Sydney and about Seriously? 10 in Melbourne or vice versa. It was huge. And then they started looking at security. There was always a lot of cash around and banks were easy targets. So... We would go in and we would do this trauma debriefing with the, with the bank staff. But the point of the black humour is this. The Office of Corrections in Victoria retained the company to come in the wake of prison suicides. And a terrible, terrible phenomenon was going on. There was a big spike in prison suicides. I was retained with David Syme, who was a forensic psychiatrist I work with, to do a report the Attorney General of Victoria, the late Jim Kennan, which was tabled in Parliament, looking at how we could cut down on the number of suicides in jails. So getting back to the black humour, one night I was contacted. We were always available. It's before mobile phones. It was like two in the morning. It was my birthday. I think it was, it was the head of corrections rang me, a guy called Bill Kidston, and he said, we've had a suicide out at Pentridge, the old Pentridge jail in D Division, which was the remand yard. Right. I said, it's pretty early in the day, Bill. It's my birthday, you know. <laughs> and he said, I don't give a fuck. We need you Get there. over here. Get over here. So I did. And it was probably about a 30-minute drive from where I lived to Pentridge. When I arrived, they let me in. It's still very dark. It's probably three in the morning. Had you been if, out the night before or, or is this pre-birthday celebration? No comment. You probably weren't at your best at this moment. No, then. I was okay. I, okay, I hadn't right. had a big night. I wouldn't have driven Good. if I had had a big night. It was more a pre before the actual event on the day. Yeah. So it was actually on my birthday, the early morning of my birthday. Exactly what you want on your birthday. So I arrive. It's dark. It's kind of eerie. And I'm let into Pentridge and I walk into the D Division. There's a guard of honour of prison officers singing me happy birthday. Oh, no. That's so weird. Yeah, that's the dark humour. Happy birthday, dear Tim. And then they presented me with a birthday cake. They'd managed to get a cake from somewhere and they said, this is for you. Now... You're there because of a suicide and these guys are all singing happy birthday in a guard of honour. still in the cell. Oh. Right? Now, that's the sort of stuff we used to deal with. Uh, well, how do you deal with that? You can only think that's bizarre humour because otherwise it's very disturbed. I think it was on the humour side, but it, it's an example of how these environments don't just affect criminal psychologists or criminologists, but people actually working at the yeah. coalface, police, prison officers, ambulance drivers. Well, they have to have that emotional boundary too. They have mm. to be able to go home and not take that stress of a suicide with them home. Mm. So I think that it's difficult for somebody outside to assess that situation because there is no normal in that context, is there? 
I thought the birthday cake was highly irregular and abnormal. What kind of cake was it? It was chocolate. Oh. Not as good as my mother's devil food cake, but I thought it was a very touching gesture. I wasn't hungry. I didn't want to no, anything. No, funny that. Yeah, yeah, funny about that. But yeah. these sort of dynamics are not the things you often hear about, but they go on. And uh, I would see it all the time, strange humour, which I realised even at a young age was a coping mechanism yes. for people. And certainly I've seen that too, working with lots of different homicide detectives, crimes of scenes officers, you know, anyone who's, you know, going in and out of prisons a lot. I think it definitely is a coping mechanism. And, you know, the, I've been to plenty of post-mortems and the pathologist will be making jokes, kind of not, I'm not saying about the deceased, I don't mean yeah, inappropriate not jokes, not disrespectful jokes. jokes. But just kind of joking around with the people there, you know, because these are very intense, stressful situations. And so, yeah, it is um, it is definitely a way of coping and it's something that I think that anyone who's been in that kind of scenario can understand. But if not, it's very difficult to, to kind of get your head there. So, yeah, it's something that we've certainly seen. So, I mean, we've worked together on some documentaries too like we we worked for months on the Malat documentary yeah Ivan Malat buried secrets and that was pretty heavy going because we were working a lot with the families of individuals who we believe may be Malat victims and you know that that was pretty emotional working with some of those families who are still traumatized by the events that happened 30 40 well 50 years ago now and getting to know those families on a personal level and carrying yeah. the weight of that responsibility to try and help bring those families some answers. And I think maybe with Brian Letcher's family, with Peter Letcher's family and Brian, his father, I think we did provide some answers and some resolutions that may help him. He was the kid who was murdered in the Janolan Forest. Correct. And I firmly believed that Peter was one of Ivan Malat's victims. Mm. But his father, Brian, has carried around the guilt. He's felt guilty for Peter's death all these years. And at the conclusion of that, I got to go and speak to Brian after it had aired, not part of the documentary at all, and just went up and spoke to, to Brian and his partner and told them that we genuinely believe that Peter was a was a Malat victim because I wanted to relieve Brian of some of that guilt because there's only one person who's guilty for Peter's death and that's the person who killed him. It's not Brian. It wasn't Peter's fault. There's only one or more people. Whoever actually killed Peter are the people who are responsible, not his family and not the victim. But I think we determined pretty firmly that it was Malat. He was working in the area. Correct victimology. Correct victimology. And there was the guy who got away who was on, uh, Malat was turning off the Western Same Highway yep. to go up towards Oberon, yep. Yep. which is on the way to the, the Janolan Forest. And everything about the scene said that it, anyway, yeah, so we concluded it was, it was he was very likely to have been um, an Ivan Malat victim. The whole point of that is, you know, that was a pretty intense series to make. We had a lot of emotions with the families and trying to provide them with answers and working with the police. But there were certainly moments of levity when we were off camera and we were very, we were being very silly, frankly, because I think you need to, don't you? Like, otherwise, if it's too heavy all the time, it's physically and emotionally exhausting. I think the crew were a bit surprised at how silly we were when we weren't working, like when we were having breaks and stuff, because I think you just need that emotional break from the heavy. It's a circuit breaker. Yeah. And, you know, there's a bit of silliness, a bit of laughter, 
Fluffing our lines. Oh, oh there was a lot of, of fluffing of lines and, mm. yeah, there was a lot of that. But I think it's necessary when you're in a high-intensity environment to have that laugh. You know, literally for the chemicals it sends around your brain. I think otherwise it's just emotionally exhausting. I really enjoyed doing that documentary, four hours of great television, but, you know, it was exhausting too, emotionally exhausting, looking at all the material, you know, dealing with situations, empathising with families where the kids have just disappeared, never been seen again. I know, some haven't ever been found. and The unanswered questions. Yep. Yeah, that ambiguous loss as we would describe it. And I think, if anything, that is... It seems to be the worst part of all that ambiguous loss, not knowing that constantly waiting for something to change, possibly hoping they're going to come home. And I was reminded of that recently because I did um, a documentary on the Beaumont siblings, Grant, Anna and Jane, who vanished, obviously, um, from Glenelg in 1966. Never been seen again. Three siblings vanished without a trace. And I was reminded only... A few weeks ago because the father, the father died. And we did the documentary, oh, wow, I want to say for Channel 7, and that was Michael Usher too, back in maybe, I want to say 2018, and we did an excavation. We were hoping to find the children's remains. Did you speak with the father then? We didn't speak with the father, but he was very aware of the documentary. He was in his yeah. 90s at the time, still living in Glenelg. Sadly, the mother had passed away yes. a number of years before. Both of them had remained in the Glenelg area because I get the sense that they were still in some ways hopeful that the children would come home. Like if they left the area. You have to hang on to something. Yeah, because they didn't have answers. And although we didn't speak to the father directly, obviously we were working closely with South Australia police, they were in touch with the father. And what really what really touched me was afterwards, or actually when we were filming the excavation that was done by South Australia police, he contacted us through them and thanked us for looking and, thank, and said that he was pleased that somebody cared enough to keep looking for his children. And I very, I felt very strongly the weight of wanting to find answers for him before he died. I was aware he was in his 90s and I just wanted to be able to tell him, well, not me tell him, the police tell him, but if, if we could get him answers and give him some resolution before he died, imagine waiting all those years and not knowing what happened or worse. why. Just heartbreaking. And then when I heard he died... I, that made me really sad that he'll never know what happened. And so even after the, you know, even after you do these documentaries, it doesn't mean your relationship with these people and these cases ends. And I think that's a weight you do carry, actually, because I still feel that we let them down slightly, him down by not finding them. Well, when we worked on Malat, and it's a great compliment to you, one of the things I noticed was your incredible caring and empathy for these parents and survivors and wanting to make sure that the right thing was done by them and uh, protecting them in many ways, uh, which I thought was very admirable. Well, when you're engaging with the media, the media can be a difficult space, especially if you don't know that platform and the landscape and navigating that. And I think we've heard that from some of our guests too, like Tracy trying to engage with the media to keep... Kath's case front and centre, Kath Folby's case front and centre. Yeah, it can be difficult for these families and I do feel very protective of them. I, You know, if I'm working with families on a documentary, I want to make sure that they're informed, that they feel safe, that they know that they're going to be protected because it's their stories mm. at the end of the day that are being told. And I think we have a duty of care to them then 
and going forward to protect them emotionally from that kind of spotlight and make sure that whatever they need to get from it, they get from it, but it's not damaging to them, that it's not re-traumatizing them. And yeah, I feel that, I do feel that weight actually. So that is something that I carry, yeah. And I think we let the Beaumonts down in some way by not finding the children. And, you know, that's just a kind of little bit of guilt, I guess, you just have to carry. With great respect, it's not rational. But I understand. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. It's not, I understand I know where it's you're not rational. From. I know it's not rational, but you just, you just really want to give them the resolution. Yeah. And I think that at times when we're doing stuff, yeah, the humour has to, has to break through that. Thanks so much for your questions. If you enjoy this and want more of these, you can always submit a question to our Instagram at Motive and Method, and we'll aim to do more of these to unpack your burning questions in the future. Until then, I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. And I'm Tim Watson Munro. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>